Hey guys, and welcome to Hunting Land, presented by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. If you'd like to stay up to date on hunting tactics, land management, land values, and land market dynamics, this is the podcast for you. This week's show is brought to you by the Hunter's Mate Lowdown Trail Cam Reviewer. Finally, a trail cam viewer that actually works. Lowdown's high-speed trail cam viewer has flipping fast technology that allows you to view images three times faster on a screen that is 60% bigger than typical 7-inch viewers. Lowdown is a dedicated viewer slash photo manager made for one thing and one thing only, fast, uncomplicated viewing of your trail cam images and videos. Lowdown makes viewing large numbers of images fast and easy. It allows you to easily delete individuals or groups of selected images. Find out more at lowdownviewer.com. And also brought to you by Alabama Ag Credit. Buying rural property isn't the same as buying in town. If you're in the market to purchase your own piece of paradise or need an operating line for your farm, give our friends at Alabama Ag Credit a call. As the local experts in rural real estate financing, they can help you with everything from homes and land to tractors and crops, because sometimes natural resources need financial resources. And while some lenders don't get it, they do. Learn more by visiting alabamaagcredit.com. I'm your host, Joe Baya, here today with a special co-host, my good friend, turkey hunting buddy, and uh, National Wild Turkey Federation Alabama State Board member, Mr. Matt Horton. Matt, it's good to have you co-hosting with me, man. Yeah. All right. Well, first off, I just gotta uh, just gotta ask you a couple of your questions about your turkey hunting background. When did you start turkey hunting? I think I started when I was probably about 12, 13 years old. All right. What's your most memorable miss? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> so many, so many. Oh, <laughs> uh, they're all fresh. Yeah, they, they just kind of uh, kind of one big blur there. Uh, missed one last day of the season this year, so. Uh, that's the that's the freshest yeah, one. Yeah, that's on the, the freshest one. So well, I, I won't tell all the stories of the ones I saw. Yeah. So thanks, Joe. Yeah, appreciate it. <laughs> well, man, I'm excited about uh, our topic today because for one, we've got two of the most foremost experts on wild turkey habitat joining us, but also a big problem I see really amongst turkey hunters is the perceived inability to manipulate habitat on land that they lease. You and I both lease land specifically to hunt turkeys, and I know I have fallen into this trap. It's not my land, and I don't feel like I can do anything, and I don't want to invest maybe in doing anything because it's not my land. I don't know how long I'm going to have it, but man, the reality is is, is there's a lot more leased land out there, and uh, if, if we really want to see um, turkey numbers thrive, people are going to have to do it on, on leased land just the same as private oh, yeah. land that they own, so... Today, we are talking with Will Gullsby and Michael Chamberlain. Guys, thank you for joining us. Uh, before we jump into the, the meat and potatoes on this podcast, I want you all to tell everybody a little bit about your background. So, Michael, let's start with you. Tell everybody just kind of a little bit about what you do. Yeah, so I'm, I'm a researcher at the University of Georgia. I've been studying turkeys for about the last 28 years now, almost 30 years. Grew up in Virginia, small-town kid. I actually cut my teeth fall turkey hunting. That's how spring turkey hunting wasn't sexy like it is now. We were fall turkey hunters. We'd scatter flocks, call them back to us, and often shoot jakes and, yeah. <laughs> and jennies. You know, that's what we did. Ended up going to school in wildlife biology, wildlife science, whatever you want to call it, and, and was fortuitous enough to get stints in grad school as a master student, as a PhD student. And I rolled out of grad school and, and went to LSU to, to teach there and was fortunate to have a state agency there that was supportive of me. 
they funneled me grant money, and the next thing you know, I've, I've been studying birds ever since. Ended up leaving there and going to University of Georgia, where I've been for, gosh, last 12 years now. So uh, I, I, most of my work is, is very similar to what Will will tell you is, you know, applied work. We, we have graduate students that we that we mentor and train, and they're the workhorses. They're the ones that actually do the work. Yeah. And we go out and study this bird and the landscapes they inhabit and, and try to collect data that agencies can use to make the best decisions on how to manage this resource sustainably. Yeah. Well, I'm really excited to, to talk about what we're going to talk about today. Uh, will, what about you? Yeah, so I'm a professor of wildlife ecology and management at Auburn University. And, um, War Eagle? Yeah, War Eagle. <laughs> <laughs> Actually did my graduate work at the University of Georgia. Um, Go dog. And, and just as a, as a FYI, Mike was actually um, on my graduate research. He was part of my graduate research committee as a PhD student. And as you and I just recently discovered, we share some connections with yeah. both being from Tillman's Corner and yeah. Mobile County. So yeah. small world, right? Uh, but I started hunting at a young age, mostly deer. We didn't really have a lot of turkeys to hunt where I spent most of my time growing up. And we moved to North Georgia when I was nine and didn't really know anybody that turkey hunted in that area either because there weren't many turkeys, like I mentioned. So it wasn't really until grad school at University of Georgia that I got in with some other grad students that uh, were turkey hunters and kind of cut my teeth on it with them. My early work in graduate school and my postdoc and then starting out at Auburn, which I, which I started working there in 2015, focused a lot on deer, but I've increasingly started focusing my research on habitat management, primarily for game species. So there's been a strong focus on all aspects of forest management for deer and turkeys in particular. And that's kind of like my bread and butter now. So anything related to silviculture and how that affects wildlife habitat or prescribed fire, herbicide, herbicide with fire, food plot management, old field management, that's kind of my bread and butter. Well, man, there's so much we could talk about today, but I am going to try to keep us on topic because when you start talking about silviculture and how that combines with wild turkey habitat and you're speaking my language you know yeah. i mean those are all things that interest me and it's always you know i kind of find, I find it funny that one thing ends up leading to the other you know mm-hmm. you you maybe you start out as a deer hunter and that's how you found turkeys or you right you know you start out as a a deer hunter or a turkey hunter and that's how you end up owning land and you know we're here uh, on location at the dennis lake wing club uh in advance of a landowner field day uh, tomorrow where we're going to be talking about what landowners can do, mm-hmm. uh, with their properties to improve the habitat for wild turkeys. But, you know, I hunted lease land for a long time before I ever hunted any of my own land, uh, for wild turkeys. And, you know, I'm, I hate to say it. I mean, some of that was b- because of my adolescence, but I hate to say it, but I never really did a whole lot for turkeys on lease land. And uh, I, there's a big misconception, I think, out there with people that, that they think, well, it's not my land and I just can't, I can't do anything. Yeah. So uh, that's what we really want to get into today. And the way we're going to break this show down is, is really to talk about what we shouldn't do, you know, not necessarily like getting out on the property and, and what we can do, uh, but what maybe we should avoid doing for wild turkeys. But And then what can we do on, mm. on those properties? So you guys are researchers, and that's what's so interesting about this is that it's, this isn't anecdotal. This isn't, you know, me and Matt out there 
releasing crickets in a food plot, you know, trying to, trying to. <laughs> You're not the first person I've heard mention that, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. You know, uh, but, you know, you guys really have the data behind what we think might work. And uh, so, so let's jump into it. Is there any research that you guys can highlight that substantiates why certain practices are harmful to wild turkeys? You know, I, I, one of the things I'm hearing, starting to hear more and more recently, Matt's gotten on to me about it a couple times, is, hey, man, unhook the bush hog and uh, let, let it sit. So what do you guys think? Is there any research out there that's pointing to things we should be avoiding that will really help wild turkeys? Yeah, I mean, bush hogging in May and June is a no-no. I mean, unless you're so hell-bent on having it clean-looking, you're much better to let the bush hogs sit during May and June. And the reason is, in this part of the world, you know, peak nest initiation, which would be when laying starts, is around the first week of April. It extends into the second week of April. So that has that pushes your hatch dates to the middle of May. So you've got, you know, one-week-old poults that are on the ground, and they're using these early successional areas that are, are grassy and Think about, this is an analogy I give, think about a, a deer plot that you had that you planted in wheat, oats, clover, something like that back in the fall. And it rolls around to May, and what does it look like? The clover is green underneath, but the wheat and oats are brown and senescent. And it looks like hell, let's mm-hmm. be honest. It looks bad. That is prime brood habitat. Mm-hmm. We see broods using that in every project we have. GPS marked hens will take those poults to those plots without fail you come in and clip that down you're you're taking on you're running the risk of of nest that could potentially be in those plots but more importantly you're you're taking brood habitat that's high quality and you're pushing it to zero yeah Mm. the same thing you know if you think about that may 15th so may 15th is about when we see our first peak of hatching and that peak of that hatching extends into around june the 5th ish so if you're on a bush hog and you're clipping food plots to make them look good in preparation for planting two or three actually it would be three three and a half months later Mm -hmm. you're doing more harm than good you'd be better off to leave it let the tractor sit don't run the risk and let those birds use those areas because the data clearly shows that that they're going to use those plots yeah, good points, and, and uh, to add to that, you know, there's a study that's ongoing right now up in Tennessee, Dr. Craig Harper and some others are running it, and they recently reported that um, during the past few years, they've lost about 12% of their nest due to mowing. Oh, wow. And that's a, that's a very pastoral landscape, you know, so you've got a lot of pastures and hay fields, people are cutting hay, people are mowing pastures, and so, you know, if you think about it, just to answer your question directly... You know, if you could just, I mean, 12%, an increase of 12% in nest success would be significant with the oh, low yeah. nest success yeah. rates that we're seeing we're, across we're seeing the about, southeast. We're seeing about, on average, about 20% nest success right. per year across the southeast, multiple populations. So if you think about taking out 10, 12% of right. nest with something we could avoid doing, that's a substantial amount of that is, potential reproduction. That's also saving you time and money. Yeah, I was about to for say, sure. Right? Yeah. You know, you're not burning fuel. You're not spending that time. I mean, I know some people recreationally mow. Right. You know, that's the thing. Yeah, it it, it can therapy, be fun. Yeah. You, you feel like you're doing something. 
but just by parking the tractor right off the bat, we know that we can increase nest success and especially in mowing food plots because, you know, we're here in the deep south. This is the pine belt, right? And so a lot of our openings on your average lease property or even the property that you own are food plots. And so those are these areas that Mike was talking about that these turkeys are keying on and nesting around the edges of and taking their broods out into. So those areas are really important to try to keep intact during that time of the year. Just to add one other thing, just a quick anecdote. Uh, last summer, I was touring a property with, with a rel- on a lo- relatively large property with a landowner. And as we were driving around, we passed one fall food plot. It, was already, it had already been mowed you know, with the bush hog. We passed another one. It looked like it had been mowed a little bit, a little bit more recently. And we get to another one, and he's act- actively mowing it. You know, one of his managers, one of his guys is out there currently mowing it. And uh, this was, this would have been right around early June. And about that time, I asked the landowner, I said, well, is this, you know, a typical practice that you implement during this time of the year? And he said, well, no, sometimes kind of, you know. And I said, I think this is really negatively impacting your brooding cover because he was interested, you know, he was concerned about his turkey population and, and wanted to carry more turkeys. And we came around the corner and I couldn't have scripted it any better if I if I had tried, you know, in a million years. We come around another corner to a fairly large food plot. The mower hasn't gotten to it yet. And I said, you know, I started pointing out, you know, we've got a little bit of grassy cover. we got some forbs growing up. It was like a crimson clover wheat food plot. And I was like, there's actually, you know, pretty good structure for these, these hens to take these broods out into. And just like that, two hens with about 20 poults across the road right in mm-hmm. front of us coming out of that food plot. Yeah. Interesting. You know, you say, you talk, start talking on 10%, 12%, you know, increase. Those are significant. And I think the thing, you know, and speaking from, uh, I'll call myself a juvenile landowner, you know, like I'm... I'm just getting into it. I'm excited about it. You know, I want to go up there. I want to get out there and do something. I want to make an impact. And and I've got, you know, I've got a, literally, I've got a calendar written out. Here's what I'm doing in May, June, July, August. Like, i am got my, my projects on there. And for me, you know, you get to those months and deer season's over and turkey season's over. And you're like, all right, I'm ready to do something. Mm-hmm. And there's that tractor sitting there. Mm-hmm. And uh, so you're you're making me happy because as Matt knows, I tend to tear some stuff up when I get on a tractor. So <laughs> the least the least amount of time I can spend on one, the better. But you know, I'm gonna jump ahead a little bit and say, what could we be doing in May and June on leased lands that will help? So is there something that we could replace that habit with and get off the tractor and do something else? See, that's a weird time of year for wild turkeys because what the data show is if you are a hen with broods, you're doing something almost entirely different than what the rest of your population is doing. Your toms have settled down. Uh, your jakes are in their social groups. They've gone and found them. What we see in least pine-dominated landscapes is they go find them a couple of food plots, if you will, open areas that they can spend time in and around and they hunker down so may and june becomes almost they've used very little space so whatever they are using they're using intensively toms are doing the same thing their breeding behaviors are shutting down broods are doing the exact opposite they're using intensively using areas and then as they're getting bigger by the day they're using more and more and more areas so suddenly they're using will's property my property your property 
they're expanding, you know, this big web out. And as they get bigger, they get the ability to use more diverse habitats. So your lease, you may have these old, you know, senescent, I'll call them food plots that you planted back in the fall. And broods will use your plots for a few weeks. And then all of a sudden they're on Will's property because he's got bottomland hardwoods that are there. And, the, and they're roosting off the ground now, and suddenly they're eating insects that are two and three feet off the ground because they're in vegetation that's, that's above the ground. So to your question, one thing I often tell people is try to identify what your potential strengths could be. And what I mean by that is if you, and you can, if, if you can obtain information on, okay, what's the annual cycle of a turkey, mm-hmm. right? What are they doing as the year progresses? Can you identify anything on your property that, that's already in your wheelhouse? For instance, I've got brood cover, which is rare, honestly, as, as Will knows. Do I have winter habitat? Do I have, what, what do you have? And is there anything you could do, whether it's do nothing like we right, talked about? Go fishing. Yeah. Right. Is there anything you could do to play to that strength that you already have rather than trying to do everything? Mm -hmm. And I think that's a common problem I see with landowners, and Will may disagree with me, but I see a lot of landowners that they want to try to help so bad that they're willing to do anything, and sometimes that results in them watering down what they really could be doing where they could focus their efforts on something that would be impactful to that local population. And that's one thing we're going to talk about tomorrow. You know, turkeys, their home, their home range across the years in thousands of acres. Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you're, if you have a relatively small piece of property, you're only, you know, those birds are using your property during portions of their annual cycle. So understand that if you could identify why they're there when they're there, and then capitalize on that, to me, that that's a way you could make an impact. Mike, that's interesting to hear you say that those turkeys really use, is they're pretty using a, an intensive area. You know, it's a small area, they're focused in that, and then that expands as those poults grow. Uh, I witnessed that exactly what you're describing just by game camera this year, just, just my personal, you know, cellular game cameras, just watching that, and it was like, as soon as turkey season ended, May and June, I started seeing hens on camera pretty much daily, if not every other day. And these cameras were not set up to capture pictures of turkeys. They were basically set up to keep an eye on my property. Mm-hmm. But I was seeing, you know, pretty regular photos. And then as we've progressed since that period of time, I've been getting them much more irregularly. It's like they're not in that area as frequently. So, you know, anecdotally, I, I've, I've seen exactly what you just described i mean is is feeding one of the things that we shouldn't be doing or is there benefit there drawbacks i mean what what's the big picture on on that yeah i mean you you hear this question a lot so am i doing something positive by feeding in the spring and summer or am i doing something negative and i usually start the answer to that question by just reminding people that turkeys are not adapted nor should they be eating carbohydrates in the spring and summer their diet is 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 strictly limited to plant material and insects and the reason they're doing that is because if you're a poult you're trying to grow big fast and you have to have protein to do that 
you're also molting your feathers constantly. You're getting bigger and you're growing new feathers and you have to have protein to do that. And if you're an adult, you're also molting. You're, changing, you're replacing every feather on your body during the summer. And carbohydrates don't support that. Proteins do. So you're, you're basically putting this food source on the landscape that is attractive to turkeys, and they're going to come and it's eat. Palatable, it. yes. right? Like they want. Yes. They're like, this tastes good. They're going to, and if you think about it from an energetic standpoint, they can go to a spot and gain energy quickly, and then they can move on to somewhere else. But that the energy they're gaining is not is not the way that their ecology works. I mean, what we see with broods is broods, they go to areas that are prey rich, lots of insects, lots of succulent green vegetation, and they spend a lot of time there and they revisit it. They'll leave and come back, leave and come back. They may uh, leave a spot today and come back three days later and use it for a day and then come back three days later and use it a day. And what they're doing is they're, they're taking bugs out of the environment and then they're leaving to allow they're not exploiting every all of the resources in the environment. So they and turkeys do this in general. They revisit places. So a feeder is not that behavior. Think about it. You put a feeder out there and it spins corn on the ground twice a day. They're not revisiting three days down the road or five days down the road. They're revisiting every day. And from the standpoint, one, their ecology, but two, from a predator standpoint, you know, you're basically putting a bird in a situation where they're predictable. And although there's a lot we don't understand about how that, you know, feeding could influence predation rates, my general response to people is, well, the bottom line is they're not supposed to behave like that anyway in, mm-hmm. the, in the summer. So you're putting a bird in a situation where they're eating prey that they're really not supposed to be eating and they're behaving in a way that they're not really supposed to be behaving. That's kind of how I couch it. You look at it from a just, that's kind of a common sense standpoint of understanding the turkey biology and saying, it's like me. If you put a biscuit in front of me in the morning, I'm eating it. I'm going to grab it. But what I probably should have is like, you know, some vegetables, maybe a little fruit salad, maybe maybe a nice omelet. Yeah, especially, I mean, think about it from a turkey's perspective. They're out there. It's a hard scratch life. You know, they're having, if you're in a situation where you're forced to forage for your food, uh, around the landscape and that's all you have available to you but there's an ice cream shop down the road you know that's not meeting all your nutritional needs right. but it's so much easier and it's so calorie dense how can you turn it down sure. but when you layer on top of that you know some of the some of the other concerns that i have about feeding and, and one of those is aflatoxin mm. uh, which i think a lot of people have probably heard at, heard about by now but big word so first basi- off for anybody that doesn't know what you're talking about what is it it's essentially it's just a it's a fungus that grows on grain Corn in particular is a really good host for the fungus and it produces a toxin. And so uh, there's a really good Mississippi State study that came out a few years ago where they used different sources of corn and they put it out in different types of feeders during different times of the year. And essentially what they found is during the summertime, after four days, almost all of that corn was producing aflatoxin at the levels that are toxic to turkeys. After eight days, the numbers were just off the charts as far as the, the toxin concentration in that in that corn. It seems to be worse when the corn is placed on the ground. Um, so in that's piles, yeah. Yeah, in yeah. piles yep. in particular. But during the summertime, you're going to get aflatoxin growing on corn regardless of, of what you try to do to mitigate that. So that's definitely one concern I have. And, you know, 
poults probably aren't going to be eating it during that time of the year. But with the vital rates that we've been seeing out of a lot of these turkey populations lately, it, it seems like hen survival is something that's a, a key vital parameter to maintaining population productivity and, and long-term stability. And, you know, if that aflatoxin, you know, maybe it doesn't directly kill the hen, but it could compromise her immune system. We know that that can happen in other species. But unfortunately, we really don't have data so far to determine, you know, how much of that corn they're actually consuming and whether that's enough to make them sick or even, you know, eventually result in mortality. Yeah, but And one thing to, to point out, too, there was some research back, what, 20 years ago showing that, you know, aflatoxins are particularly problematic for poults. The adults are a little more resistant, but it causes liver failure in poults. And as an aside, I, I don't, people don't do this anymore, but I used to trap turkeys in the summer all the time when I was a grad student because you, you can crush them in the summer. And, and I was particularly interested in catching broods because I wanted to leg band those poults and then see if they showed up in the harvest, and, and they did in some of the interesting ways, which is an aside. But cracked corn, you know, poults would, I mean, they readily use it. Hmm. And you think if you if you raise boilers or you raise chickens in your yard, you know, crack corn, scratch. I mean, it, they they love it. And to Will's point, you know, that Mississippi State work clearly showed that after a few days, you, you're at levels that are problem truly problematic. And once you get down the road a week, and that corn is still sitting there, I mean, you're creating a problem. You know, to your point, well, what should we not do? We should not create a problem when there's science showing that what you're doing is problematic. Yeah, there's, I think, two other things um, that I'd like folks to think about related to feeding during the summer when it comes to turkeys. One of those is we don't have, the, we don't have direct evidence related to turkeys yet, but there, are, there have been a couple of simulated quail nest studies that show lower nest success rates associated with those simulated quail nests when they're in close proximity to a feeder. And to be more specific about, you're seeing about half the rate of nest success with those simulated quail nests in fed versus unfed areas. So wow. not turkeys, you know, not actual nest with a hen sitting on them, but it gives me some cause for concern. The other thing that I like folks to think about just from a common sense perspective is that there has been a good bit of research that has shown that the vast majority of corn that we feed isn't, isn't being eaten by those target animals, primarily turkeys and deer. In fact, you know, we see this pretty consistent number across a lot of studies that show about 75 to 80% of the corn that's being put out is being consumed by nest predator species. You know, particularly raccoons are oftentimes one of the top top species that are responsible for that. And there is some interesting data uh, from Dwayne Elmore out of Oklahoma State where they kind of actually stumbled into this accidental natural experiment where they were feeding some corn in some areas and some milo, some grain sorghum in other areas. And they did find that by uh, switching over to that milo, that they cut down on that non-target use of the feed by quite a bit. It was, it was a significant reduction. I don't remember the exact number off the top of my head. But more importantly, they didn't see any reduction in the number of deer pictures in that study. Mm -hmm. So if you're trying to catch bucks on camera, get those velvet pictures, do your scouting for the season, create your hit list or whatever, that is one alternative. And although aflatoxin can grow on Milo, it's a much less suitable host than corn is. Milo will make you smile. <laughs> That's a rumor. I like these guys. They're first, they told me I don't need to get on the tractor as much. There's diesel bill just went down. Saving your feed bill. Repair bill went down. 
don't need to feed. Uh, don't have to worry about that. No more hauling sacks of feed around. That's good. I'm, I'm, I'm hesitating to ask this next question because this is this will really hit me hard if y'all don't answer it the way I want you to answer it. But no pressure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no pressure. <laughs> what about planting? Food plots are a big part of my life. Thinking back to May and June, I'm ready to get up there and kind of terminate what was growing in the fall and get something going for the summer. Is that harmful in any way? Should should we be leaving open areas unplanted? Is there any research pointing to that? Well, I mean, if, if you're planning, what it, what I've seen is if you're planning this, well, I'll call them just the standard deer mixes, you're planting cereal grains like wheat and oats, you're planting clovers, those are largely conducive with turkeys. In fact, like, like I already mentioned earlier, we see a lot of use of those food plots that you plant in September, October, in May, June, July. We see a lot of use by all both sexes in all ages. Personally, I would rather you leave that alone and let those birds get through that part, part of the cycle rather than go and remove it and try to put something else there that's succulent and green that as you know that's a tough time of year anyway Mm -hmm. what we see from a from a a turkey standpoint is they're going to use openings in the summer there's there's no question you look at the gps data it very clearly shows they're they're hanging around openings they may not always be in the opening but they're going to be somewhere nearby but almost exclusively they're using things that were planted back months before or they're using areas that were recently disc or otherwise burned you know four stands that were burned around the plot the chaff was burned off of the plot as part of this prescribed fire back in february or march or whatever it was in a lot of situations i don't think the risk is worth the reward that you get if your primary focus is managing deer plots which most are a lot of what you're doing is already conducive to, to the birds and their behavior. That's the way I, I kind of look at it. Yeah, there's <clears throat> there's two things that, that I would like you to consider when trying to make this decision. And one of those is that this doesn't necessarily have to be an all-or-nothing proposition, right? Mm-hmm. So you can potentially take a subset of your plots and allow those to be essentially fallow, right, during the brooding period to provide continue to provide that habitat or... You can even take just the edges, particularly if it's a larger plot, and allow that area to provide some brooding cover. We want as much of it as we can we can create because it is so limiting across the landscape, but we understand in practicality you're going to have to have a compromise when you have these dual, somewhat sometimes competing objectives of managing deer and managing turkeys. The other thing that you can consider as well is if your primary goal of planting those growing season plots is to provide a high-protein deer forage source during that early antler growth period. And, you, of course, you're, you're supporting gestation and the does during that time of the year as well, is that you can go with something like a, a wheat or an oat. And when I plant wheats or oats, wheat or oats in the fall, and I want that to be a brooding plot later on in the summer, I'll back off that seeding rate a little bit to give them a little bit more open space between the plants. So maybe I'll take it off back from... 50 pounds per acre of wheat to 40 pounds per acre of wheat and cut that back a little bit. But if I have something like crimson clover mixed in there, that crimson clover is going to come on pretty strong in the spring and it's going to meet that nutrient requirement for deer as well. It's going to be a high protein 
food source and depending on where you are i mean we're we're in the you know deep south alabama right now so maybe it it doesn't last much beyond you know late april or early may that's still a pretty good bit into the antler growth cycle you know so you've been providing some high protein food source for quite a while and hopefully you've managed the surrounding acreage to continue that going forward once that clover dies back you know you have another another food source to carry that load throughout the rest of the summertime so those are, you know, a couple of options that you can consider. You know, you could even mix arrowleaf clover into that mixture as well and extend that further on into June and continue to provide that high-protein food source while still providing for that brooding cover. Arrowleaf kind of, it gets a little more, it gets a little more woody. Is that is that why you say arrowleaf? No, arrowleaf just has uh, a timing of production that extends further into the summer than crimson clover does. So okay. as your crimson clover, you know, starts to wane, you know, depending on where you are around late April, early May, then the crimson clover, that's when it really shines and it'll yeah. start to pick up. And if you get good, consistent rainfall and you don't get, you know, really high heat days, that'll continue on into June. And if you make it through June, I mean, you're through the bulk of the antler growth period. And right? you can even diversify, you know, if, if you, you can strip disc, you can, you can stimulate smaller areas of some of those plots that are you know, to Will's point, and kind of a, a, imagine visually, you've got wheat notes standing there. They've turned, they're they're green and they're tall in February. They've got seeds on them. They start browning out in March. You know, a little bit. Hey, run a disc through and strip disc some of those. You know, parts of those plots just to stimulate the forbs and legumes that are going to come up in those areas within weeks because usually we get fairly abundant rainfall in that time of the year so you're going to stimulate the plant community to get native plants and and structure that turkeys would use without replanting the plot yeah. all you have to do is stimulate the, the vegetation that's already there yeah mike you, you just said something that that jogged my memory as well if you know you have a relatively large plot or you know your deer density isn't too high that weed will make seed heads. And if you plant an onless variety, there's awned and onless varieties, that wheat seed head will serve as a energy-rich food source for deer and turkeys, yep. you know, going on into the, the spring and early summer too. And so one, it's, one, th- and one thing to think about with turkeys, and this is a point, a stalk that's standing in a food plot provides two things to Will's point. If it's got seed on it, it provides seed. But if you're a poult, it provides a stem that a bug can sit on. So when that, you know, when those broods are moving through those plots, particularly once they're two weeks old or a little older and they can flutter off the ground, they're using that structure to catch bugs and they're, they're helping each other. They, they work through the plot together and they're flushing bugs for each other. So taking it back to ground zero completely undermines that. You know, having that structure there Although it looks like crap, it's really offering them the diversity of prey that they're adapted to using at that time of year, which is not just right what's under their beak, it's what's up off the ground. Sounds like just not doing anything is the, is the <laughs> yeah, trick Go here. fishing. You know? <laughs> I got it right from yeah, the start. Go fishing. Well, that's yeah. what I did as a kid. You know, We hunted during hunting season, then we went fishing, and then yeah. we came back at the end of the year and started over again. <laughs> Sounds like we had it right from the start. I don't know. That doesn't play well to my obsessive compulsive. Like you said, it, it looks like crap. And you, I've never had anybody say, "Man, Joe, you're you're 
the property looks like crap. Nobody, in fact, hardly coming up there. You know, they're just yeah. going up there in, during hunting season. So. Yeah. <laughs> so I should probably quit worrying about it, you know, and just let it be. God had a pretty good plan. I think he's got it figured out. But Well, when, even if it does look like crap and even if your friends tell you it does, <laughs> those same friends are gonna not going to criticize you when the pults come running out of the food plot. Right. And, you know, they've got twice as many gobblers. Yeah, so they, when, the, know, when the birds are gobbling, they'll, yeah, be, they'll in, be ready in, to in show In the up. spring, you know, you, <laughs> the, yeah, they're so burning, not, they're burning the woods down. To more, more function. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, we, we've learned that basically we can relax, and that's going to do a lot of good things for turkeys, and we can keep our billfold in our pocket, and that's going to do a lot of good things for turkeys. But what can we do? So Matt has gotten me into trapping. Talking about leased land, is there any research that is pointing to trapping having a significant impact? I mean, is it worth it for somebody to invest in what it takes to get enough traps to make a difference on their leased land? Is that going to make a difference for the turkey population? There's a ton of research on, not on turkeys, but in in game species and game birds in general across the globe. And the research all kind of poses the same uh if you're going to trap and expect to see any tangible benefits one you need to pair it with habitat management two you need to be intensive meaning repeatable and you need to be extensive as 50 acres versus 500 acres versus 5,000 acres there's a huge difference there so you need the biggest footprint possible and you need to go in and remove those predators just before the reproductive season. If you do all of that, then you may or may not see an effect. But that optimizes the probability that you're going to have an effect. And, and the one, one thing I'd also point out the research shows, which is particularly relevant to turkeys, is that you need to target as many predators species as possible. Mm. So if, if you've got an, an animal that there's two or three predators that affect that bird or that mammal, that's one thing. But if you look at turkeys, you have a broad suite. If you look at northern bobwhites, you have an even broader suite of species that affect that animal. Then you just have to be realistic. If you can check those boxes and you're realistic in your expectation, understanding that killing a raccoon does not equate to a nest hatching, then... I tell people, if you have any inkling whatsoever to try trapping and you're interested in doing it, do it. Trapping teaches you an attention to detail. It teaches you woodsmanship that you otherwise do not get. I mean, it just, well, I I know Will's going to agree with this. Some of the most wood-savvy people I've ever been around were trappers. They... It teaches you things about your environment that you otherwise are not going to learn because you're trying to put an animal, for instance, with a foothold trap, you're trying to put a foot on a a two-inch circle, you know, type of thing. I just tell people, just be realistic in your expectations. You're not going to go out there and kill a, a coyote and make a difference. You're not going to kill five coyotes and make a difference. What you're going to have to do is, one, Put as much effort into your habitat management as you are your predator management. And I understand the leaseholder. I understand that. If you're hamstrung and all you can do is predator management, then understand that you need to be realistic in the, in the outcome of the management that you put in. You're not taking one and producing one. That's not, 
that's not the way the math works. So, like, how far out of those? So, for turkeys, I mean, you need to be thinking our nesting season in the deep south is largely um, an April and early May exercise, even as far south as we are right now. It's it's largely an April and May. So, if you've got nests that are hitting the ground, our early nests are like March 20th to March 31st. Those are early nests. I mean, you need to be thinking the very end of legal trapping seasons in areas that don't allow you to trap predators on into the spring. As quickly as you, you know, as soon before the nesting season as, as legally possible, that's what you need to be targeting. Not January or December, because what the research, at least on raccoons and particularly with coyotes, as Will knows, you, know, you create these voids by taking individual animals out several months ahead of time, and they quickly backfill. And all you've done is create a void that's filled with within sometimes days, not certainly not months, but we're talking days or weeks. There's another individual there occupying that space. So that speaks to why it needs to be as soon, as close to nesting season as you can possibly get it. Understood. Yeah, I, I pretty much agree with everything that Mike just said. The the one point where I might offer, you know, a little bit of clarification from my perspective is I encourage everybody that's inclined to trap to trap as long as that's not taking any of your t- your time away that could be invested in habitat Elsewhere, management. Yeah, yeah. yeah, for sure. Totally uh, agree. Because yep. we and we don't have we don't have hard numbers on this, but there have been a lot, a lot of predator control studies done with quail. And best case scenario, just to, just to like, you know, give you proper expectations, you get about 80% of your abundance on a given property, if not 90% of your abundance is there because of the habitat. So I would expect at best maybe like a 10 to 20% increase in abundance on top of that if you have an effective trapping program in place that is kind of aligned with, with how Mike laid it out. Extensive, intensive, and at the right time of year. So it's not a silver bullet, it's just a tool in the tool. It is. It's a tool it's in the toolbox. It's, it's, yeah. it's a supplement. Yeah. yeah. And I and I tell people, you know, I look at it as I start with habitat and then there are these other tools, whether we're or if you want to manage predator numbers, manage it. If you want to manage your harvest pressure, manage it. Those are just tools to get to the ultimate end game, the building block being habitat. Yeah. And I mean, this may, this may be somewhat of a oversimplification, but I mean, you think about, you know, some area like uh, you could think about trying not to make a anal- an analogy here that's totally off the wall. But let's just say somewhere that's outdoors that's totally predator free, like a tennis court. Right. Like there's no turkey predators in that tennis court, but there's no turkeys there because there's no habitat. Right. And what we're actually managing for is, is is along that gradient. We you know we've got more habitat, and you know over here we it may be you may have habitat that'll support ten turkeys. Over here you've got twenty. Maybe over here you have a same size piece that'll support a hundred. So you've got that gradient. But habitat management is predator management, right? So by creating certain vegetation conditions, we can make the predator's job more difficult. Mm. Um, so don't just think of them in separate boxes. Habitat management and predator management go hand in hand. Turkeys have made it this far without anybody needing to manage predators. But yeah. if you also at the same, to that same line of thinking, 
the woods were left alone. Yeah. Uh, we didn't have pine plantations and, you know, agriculture. And, you know, if you're talking, looking way, way back. So, like you said, it, in a in a perfectly left alone situation, it manages itself. We're trying to set the turkey up for success, not necessarily uh, create an artificial environment that where it's more successful. Right. And right. a lot of the things that we do as human beings favors the predator more than the right. turkey to begin with. I mean, we fragment our landscapes. We've got roads and power lines and all these linear features that run everywhere that mm. are effective hunting areas. We feed them corn. We feed. We do all these things <laughs> right. that, that benefit the predator, and people need to understand. The primary culprits that eat turkeys on our landscapes today, at least based on the data that my folks have collected, you know, nest predators, raccoons, rat snakes, those are two biggies. Both benefit from the edge-rich, fragmented environments that we currently live in. Adult predators, bobcats and coyotes, both benefit from the same landscape conditions that we're creating across the landscape. So just kind of think about that, that as you're going about your business, understand that a lot of the things that are eating turkeys are using the, the environments that we're creating right. in our own management. And some of it, I mean, we can't control. You well, can't and especially control. on leased land, right? Sure. Because you, yeah. you, you don't have control of that. Yeah. All right, folks, we'll be right back. Y'all take a minute and check out some of the businesses that make this show free for you every episode. Uh, this week is brought to us by Great Days Outdoors Magazine. If you're frustrated with typical hunting and fishing magazines and tired of reading content, then for guys that are up in the north or up in the Midwest, Check out Great Days Outdoors magazine. Don't get left behind following the guidance of guys who don't fish or hunt in your home state. You can pick up a Great Days Outdoors magazine subscription, and it will help you become a better Southern outdoorsman. Great Days Outdoors magazine can be found at your local Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, Tractor Supply Company, Rural King, Bass Pro Shops, or you can save online at greatdaysoutdoors.com. Also brought to you by Southern Seed and Feed. Do you want to provide better nutrients to your deer? If so, try Southern Buck Food Plot Blends. Your deer will love it. At Southern Seed and Feed, they specialize in making textured feed for horses, cattle, sheep, goats, hogs, chickens, small animals, and wildlife. Their products are proven irresistible, scientifically formulated to promote excellent herd health and hunter satisfaction. They supply products to various distributors throughout the South. So visit their website at southernseedfeed.com or call 662-726-2638 to find the dealer nearest you. So what I'm taking away from what you guys are saying is fundamentally, like habitat has got to be the foundation of this. And then all these other things can be supplements to that. And that's probably the biggest problem that guys at least land have is they don't have the ability to say, we're going to go out and burn mm -hmm. this block and, and do it this way. So have you guys seen uh, or do you have any advice for leaseholders? But have you seen scenarios where leaseholders have been able to work with their landowner whether that be a private you know landowner it's i'm going to go talk to jim this weekend or an institutional landowner where it's a corporation that's managing for for profit where that leaseholder has been able to do a prescribed fire or some other major habitat uh, manipulation. Yeah, we were, we were talking a little bit earlier tonight about a conversation that I had with the lease manager. He's actually a biologist 
who works for a major timber company in the South, and he said that they're actually starting to call share some prescribed burning with their leaseholders. Um, 50, 50. So the company pays for 50% of the cost. You know, if it's $20 an acre, they're paying for 10 of it and the leaseholders are paying for the other 10 of it. <clears throat> so I think it's, uh, it's an alternative that wouldn't maybe be economically viable for the company without that cost share process, but they're looking for ways to try to get some more fire back on the landscape. The other thing that I have seen a lot of leaseholders do very successfully, and we've already talked about a lot about this a lot with food plots because food plots are the lowest hanging fruit on on a leased property and oftentimes the only areas that you can actively manage but i also want folks to think about their roadsides their loading decks like if you have logging operations come through those open areas they don't necessarily need to be changed over into food plots they can be managed as brooding areas but anywhere that you have enough sunlight that you've got significant coverage of grass most of the places where we have that in the southeast, we actually find that those are exotic pasture grasses. And the reason for that, even way back in the woods, is oftentimes when a logging company pulls out, they're required to revegetate the areas that they've disturbed. And on that list, there's a bunch of exotic invasive species like Bahia grass, Sericea, Bermuda grass, so on and so forth. And so, you know, you would need to check with your lease company, the timber company that you're leasing from or whoever else. But oftentimes it's as simple as an herbicide treatment, depending on the species that you're, you're combating, to get rid of those exotic pasture grasses, which grow very densely and choke out a lot of those plants that we've been talking about tonight that are very attractive for insects and provide that structure that broods need to move around in and feed. And by getting rid of those, you can allow that area to re naturally revegetate into those native forbs and grasses and become better pulp rearing cover again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and all and, and in some cases, all you would need is a disc to, to manage those. Once you convert them yeah. back to more native species, all you need is a is a, a harrow behind a tractor. I just visited a industrial timberlands the other day. That exact scenario Will just made, which is a, a excellent point. All of the loading decks were ryegrass. The when they left, they converted planted ryegrass and walked out of there and so when you get to the the food plots the loading decks if you will they're all homogenous they're all entirely ryegrass and terrible first, yeah for brooding yeah the first ryegrass is just yeah the first thing i thought was wow man if you just came in and nuked all of these and just ran a disc over it in know, the winter time it, yeah and you know with ryegrass i mean you're gonna have to repeatedly nuke it to get rid of it but i was thinking to myself man as large, as big as these sets are, you, there's actually a pretty decent footprint of potential native latent in the seed bank, latent seeds that are there. If these guys, and I told the guys, like, man, if you could just maybe talk to somebody and come in and, and nuke this and do some, some disking, and you don't have to disk it like a corn, like you're going to plant corn or soybeans in it, just scratch the dirt and let's see. It's going to be better than... Just knock the crust off of it. It's going to be better than that ryegrass that was planted in there. Yeah. Uh, at you, least let's give it a shot and see, you know? Yeah, and you preferably want to do that soil disturbance during the wintertime um, because that's when we tend to stimulate most of our native forbs. Doing it, you know, during the growing season, you tend to get a lot more agricultural weeds because they're more adapted to, to grow in response to scarification during that time of the year. But yeah, I've, I've even, to, to add to that, I have... Uh, heard from several guys that lease land that have even been able to go out and implement some of these practices and take rows. So they go in and they thin a pine stand and you've got these skitter trails and you've got take rows where they've removed all the trees in a given row. 
and they're going out there and they're u- either using an herbicide, you know, something simple like Roundup just to spray the woody vegetation out there and set it back to grasses and forbs to provide that brooding cover. Or sometimes they're using the disc, like Mike said, to set that back as well. And, you know, really, I, I can't say that in- every timber company would be okay with that. But the reality of it is you're controlling the competition of the understory that's competing with their crop trees. Especially, who knows what somebody in a corporate office is going to think? True. However, yeah, I mean, their spray, their pine stands are being sprayed all the time, right. to control competing yeah. vegetation for yes timber crop. So you're actually just helping their crop, right. in the grand scheme of things, and helping to. So if I'm hearing you correctly, y'all, please correct me if I'm wrong. But if I'm hearing you correctly, for the leaseholder, herbicide and a disc is the equivalent of a drip torch for a private landowner. It's yeah, not getting right. the, it's not getting entirely there, right. but it is certainly preferable to not to just doing nothing. To exactly, doing nothing. absolutely, yeah. yes, yeah. yeah. And I and I hate to recommend mowing for almost any wildlife <laughs> management practice, <laughs> yeah. but but I'll, I'll just put this out there, you know, because I think it could. It's be, again, it's better than nothing. But if you can't spray those rows, if you can't disc those rows, go out there and mow them during the winter time. Yeah, knock that structure back. And one, one thing I commonly see in recently thin plantations, for instance, would be dog fennel. Dog fennel comes up, it grows, you know, six, eight feet tall, grows all down the thin rows. It The senescent stalks stand there. It can become a monoculture. I mean, it's all the same. If nothing else, I mean, if you if you look at that from a turkey's perspective, it's taking away their primary means of survival, which is their vision. Go to Will's point. Go knock it down in December or January. If nothing else, you've created a situation where a bird is looking at something and sees a wall to its knot. So I'm not saying that the birds are going to come use what you just mowed, but it's certainly going to be better than not having that structure removed. And I'm with you, man. I hate to say, yeah, go get on tractor and bush yeah. hog, but in some situations. At the right time. At the right good. time. And to Will's point, you know, sometimes when you're stimulating the soil, you really need to be late fall, winter. Otherwise, you, you can ask yourself for some real problems. Like right around my house, and Will knows this because he lived there, sickle pod. You know, you go start disking in the spring, and you've got, you create a nightmare. I mean, just, and, and your intentions are great. You know, like, oh, I'm going to go do some strip disking and everything will be good. And the next thing you know, you know, you have, it's a nightmare. So you really need to understand a little bit about the seed bank in your area. And that information's out there. That information, I mean, that technical assistance is out there if mm-hmm. you want it. But you, you think about a situation where you've done this and you've got a pine plantation, it's been thinned. And so they've taken out every, you know, third to fifth row. So you go down the first row that's been taken out and you're either spraying it to set it back every probably two years or so. Um, and then you've got the trees that are left behind. Those are growing up in more shrubby cover, right? So that looks like nesting cover, right? But then you've got that area that you sprayed or God forbid you had to mow it <laughs> during the winter time. That looks more like brooding cover. Like bush hogs. <laughs> you've got brooding cover right there. And then you just wash, rinse, repeat. repeat. So you've got that that more have the greater woody composition in the rows that are left behind, which along its edges are potentially providing good cover for nest. 
And then adjacent to that, you've got the more herbaceous open areas that those hens really can take diversifying their broods the out stand, into. Yeah. You know, both from a, a structural, you know, a vision and a, a vegetation standpoint, you're just, you're taking something that's overly simplified and diversifying it a little bit, which is helpful to turkeys. Starting out with what not to do, you've already saved our listeners some money. I mean, because a lot of people are doing a lot of the things that, you know, you recommend pretty much not to do or you don't have to do. A turkey doesn't need you to do that. You're saving them some money. If you're a leaseholder, you know, you most of us at lease land are not on an unlimited budget. We've got, you know, other things in our lives that require our hard-earned dollar. So we had this conversation before we started recording in context to the private landowner about getting the most bang for your buck. You know, you've only got so much time to devote to your property, even just thinking about it. You've only got so much time to think about it, to plan, to figure out. I called Matt the other day and I said, all right, man, here, let's, let's talk about like the schedule, you know, like, all right, what are we going to, when are, what are we going to do mid August? What are we going to be doing Labor Day? What are we going to be doing mid September and trying to plan these things out? But you've only got so much time and you've only got so much money. So for the folks that are leaseholders and they want to improve their property that they lease for wild turkey, and they don't have either the time or the money or both to do everything we talked about, what's going to give you the most bang for your buck? When, what do you say, like, all right, if I'm spending your money, the first dollar goes to this, or if I'm spending your time, the first hour goes to this. What's the most important thing to do that you can do on lease land? That's a toughie. I mean, it, it's, so, it's so track specific. Mm-hmm. And back, and it, I, I, my answer would go back to the, where's your strong suit? Mm-hmm. You know, where you got to look at the greater landscape. Yeah, well, yeah, like so. You know, think about the the average tom, for instance, uses two to three or four thousand acres in a year in this part of the South, depending on you know the year and acorn failures or not. Your average, you know, hen think about a thousand. We have flocks of hens in the winter that use ten thousand acres in a winter so understand that this bird is extremely mobile in the winter they're going without question to where there are acorns on the landscape they shift their home ranges from winter to spring so they may completely disappear from your property between february and april and that that's natural they're supposed to do that so I usually tell people, I will, I'll usually ask, when do you see turkeys on your property? Like, what time of year do you see turkeys? And rarely do I hear anyone say, all year. Mm. It's usually, I get them in October, and they're gone in January or February. I feel like it's always deer season when they see them, yeah. and they're gone yeah. by turkey season. Yeah, and then they're gone. Or, you know, if you're lucky, I talk to some people who are like, you know, the jokers never show up until March, and then they leave the first week of June, and I'm like, can I? Where do you live again? <laughs> you know, where's your property? Y'all come hang out with me. Yeah. Apparently, I, I hit the jackpot. Yeah. You just well, what's your, it to it okay? Too. So, what you're sitting in is a part of the landscape that's breeding habitat and has been for probably decades because they have a strong fidelity to areas that they breed in. They go back to the same places every year. So, in your situation you can positively impact turkeys during their breeding season. Focus on that. If you're in, you know, what like Will's description is, hey, they were there in the fall and winter and then they left, then you you have the potential to benefit turkeys during their, the fall and winter part of their annual cycle. It's, so if I trap, that's going to be more impactful 
Maybe. In a then sense. If I did. Then if somebody who doesn't Certainly. see that so, same behavior. So if, if Will's got, if he's leasing a thousand acres and he doesn't see a turkey beyond January, they, they completely disappear and they're two miles down the road at your place, which apparently is where we need yeah. to go. Then Will coming in, in the absence of any other management and targeting nest predators, is not going to have any appreciable impact on nest predators on your property two miles down the road. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So identifying where you, what part of the annual cycle of turkeys using your property during, and then focus on what you could, again, to your strong suit. Going Play back to, your, to the things we talked about, which may be doing something or maybe not doing. Yeah. So that's thing you could do, but maybe be nothing. So I, I'll give you an example. The property that I hunt in Georgia near my house until this year, we have not had a gobbling turkey on that property in about eight years. I finally have seen poults this year for the first time in a decade on that property. And it's because I refused to accept the fact that I could not have turkeys during the breeding season on this property because they were right next door. I just had to do better. So I would see them during the fall and winter. And they wouldn't disappear. They would just shift to the the neighbor had them. But the neighbor was from me to you, literally. That's a lot different than my turkeys going two or three miles down the road. So in that situation, I I looked at my own program and said, I've got to change something because these birds are not seeing habitat that they need during the breeding cycle. And what I ended up doing was intensifying the fire that I could apply. I started tweaking my food plots a little bit different. And now we've got birds in the spring. But before that, I focused on fall and winter. And I really tried to to do a better job at, for instance, focusing my efforts on, on food plots that were in areas that turkeys were already using during the fall, hardwood areas. I, was try, I tried to optimize the probability that turkeys would use my fall plots that I was planting for deer. So I really focused attention on, okay, which plots are more likely to see turkeys using them. Used my trail camera pictures, used all the information that I had to identify those plots, and those are the ones I came back to do strip disking in. Those are the ones that I really tried to focus my attention on, and it it helped. Birds started hanging around a little longer, a little longer, and now this year the neighbor doesn't have all the birds. You know, I've now, got I've now got you have breeding. a chance to miss one. Yeah, let's not go there. Let's not go there. Yeah, yes. Sore yes. subject. Yeah. But now you're benefiting overwinter survival and you're making turkeys on the property. Yes, yes. And, you know, I kind of look at it from the standpoint, and this is something, Joe, you brought up right out of the box, which I think is a common mindset, but I think it's unfortunate. And it's just who we are as human beings. That mindset is, well, I can't do, but I can only do this or that. And that's not going to make a difference. And if that's the mindset collectively we have as turkey hunters, then we are doomed. This bird lives on private lands. Right. State agencies are not going to regulate or manage this out of the issues that we've seen. They're going to do what they can do to control populations and sustain populations. This is on us. It's on us as private landowners, leaseholders, and turkey enthusiasts to make a difference. And if the mindset is, well, I can't, or I don't want to because of, then we're self-defeating. And I, I'm in the same situation you're in. You know, I don't own any land. I'm at, I'm a slave to the other, the other people that own land. Right. 
but I yeah. refuse to take the the mindset of well, I can only do this, so it, I'm not even going to worry about it. Yeah. I, I refuse to take that mindset. Yeah. Yeah. It's a how can I instead of yes. I can. What can I? What could I do? Right. To make a difference. Yeah. Or like we've discussed today, what can I not avoid do. doing? Yeah. 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 What can you know, I not to make do? A difference. Yeah. Well, you know, guys, uh, one of the things that's been an interesting theme throughout all aspects of land ownership, and I talk about them all on this podcast, whether it be turkey habitat management or silviculture or installing an off-grid power system. I mean, we talk about it all. Uh, the reality is, is it's very hard to give people a rule of thumb for their property, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and whether that's owned or leased or whatever, you really have to take a look at what the property is, where that property sits in the greater landscape, the yep, and the landowner's objectives, the objectives of the landowner, where they sit, and uh, you know, so trying to give people platitudes is tough. Uh, you guys have done a great job of giving people possibilities based on their situation, but ultimately, everybody wants to know what's right for me. I mean, I'm sitting here going, "Boy, I can't wait to talk to these guys some more and tell them about my place." And what can I do on my specific piece to make a difference? If folks want to follow along with you guys and listen to all the research, all the discussion about wild turkeys, habitat improvements, everything that that you guys cover, how can they do that after this podcast? How can they continue to follow along and apply what you guys are learning to their specific situation? So I co-host a podcast. Uh, titled Wild Turkey Science with Dr. Marcus Lashley from the University of Florida. And that's what we really focus on is, is covering the science. Um, we get a, a good bit into land management, habitat management as well, because both of us focus a lot of our research on that. And then also social media, Instagram is where I'm most active, and that's at Dr. Dr. underscore Will underscore Goolsby, and that's G-U-L-S-B-Y. From Tillman's Corner. From Tillman's, from Tillman's Corner. Corner. <laughs> <laughs> Y'all are going to hammer that one home tonight. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Just a bit. yeah so um, I'm really active on social media. If you if you search on Wild Turkey Doc, D-O-C, Wild Turkey, D-O-C, one word, on Instagram or Twitter, you'll find uh, my social media accounts. I post every week uh, on Tuesdays, Turkey Tuesday post. I try to put information that is science-based, that, that's relatable and digestible, uh, that that people would be interested in. I post on Facebook, but if you're, if you're on Facebook, just type in my name, just type in Michael Chamberlain and you'll see. Um, I I've love got, that by the way, I follow along with Turkey Tuesday and it's great. I mean, I'm a, I'm a big Turkey hunter, but I think the, I feel like the more you get into this, the more you appreciate learning more and more. Yeah. Yeah. It's like a lot of things in my life. I've kind of learned some, something about it and I kind of lost interest. I feel like turkeys, I just get, it just gets deeper and deeper. So yeah. I really, I really enjoy that. Yeah. If, if y'all yeah. are not, following along turkey tuesday just that alone is awesome yeah and i'm i'm actually i, I created a website it's wildturkeylab.com that i'm archiving all of my posts all every research article i've ever published on wild turkeys is is available with summaries of what what we found and why you should care you know four or five lines not you don't have to read the whole article you can just read the summary every podcast that i've ever done we're uploading every magazine article that i've ever done like we were talking about off the air we're going to start with in partnership with onyx and uh, mossy oak and nwtf and apex ammunition we're going to we're going to start uploading historical content on wild turkeys that 
that a lot of people probably don't even know exist that I think people will, will really eat up because it's cool information like we were talking about. A lot of the things that Will and I do and we tell people is not rocket science and it's not it's been done before. It's just that you haven't heard about it, you know, and, and putting that out there where people can relate to it. To your point, the whole idea behind Turkey Tuesday was I wanted to try to force people to think about turkeys outside of February to June yeah, and and think about them all year round, think about their behavior and, and how cool they are. And if you think about turkeys 12 months a year, then I've done my job with that post. That's really what I'm trying to do with that is put the information out there and, and make you want to read it all year round, not just during turkey season, you know. Well, guys, uh, it's been a lot of fun discussing this. I think that the the leaseholder side of things is just as important, if not more, than the landowner side of things. Sure. Thank you so much for joining us and uh, giving us your expertise. Yeah, it was good. Yeah, was thanks fun, for having man. us on. Yeah, thanks for having us. Matt, it was a lot of fun being able to sit down in the middle of the summer and talk turkeys because we talk – well, you and I talk turkeys year-round. Oh, yeah. Uh, but, you know, it was really interesting to hear – the research applied to what we're seeing in the field. So what was your big takeaway from today? Big takeaway, less is more. Uh, sitting back and, and letting the letting the turkeys go through their, their life cycle without having to worry about people. Turkey going turkey. Yeah, just let, let them do their thing. Less tractor, you know. More fishing. More fishing. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I really think that's a, a big takeaway for this. How about you? Yeah, same, a lot of the same. You know, uh, what you see promoted for deer is not necessarily good for a turkey, but that doesn't mean that what's good for a turkey isn't good for a deer. I've never been on a place, you know, that that had good turkeys that didn't have good deer. Mm-hmm. You know, so when you think about it from, from that standpoint, is taking a step back, not, not feeling like you have to change everything is, is kind of a calming feeling for me because I often feel like it's me versus the earth right. to make this better. And you may not have to spend a tremendous amount of, of money to uh, to make the magic happen. I mean, you don't have to have a big expensive sprayer to, to do a herbicide application. You That's can right. do it with pump sprayer and a backpack sprayer. You just have to this is all scalable. If you've oh, got yeah. if you've got enough money to lease a large expanse of property, then collectively, or either you alone or collectively with your group that's leasing, you've got enough money to apply herbicide per acre. And so, whether that's being done with a backpack sprayer or a twenty-five gallon in the back of a on the back of a, a four wheeler or a UTV or or a PTO, you know, on the back of a tractor, it doesn't matter. You, just because you may not be able to burn doesn't mean you can't do something to improve the habitat and and i think that was also the key for me is that there's a lot of things that people hear that you can do but if you're not improving the habitat all those things are supplements you know that's that's like trying to exercise off a bad diet it's not going to work you got to focus on what you're eating first and then what you do in the gym is second so you know this has kind of fired me up to get out on the property that i lease in addition to the property mm-hmm. that I manage and that I own and make a difference there as well. It's also got me thinking about looking at those lease properties in the greater landscape and going, maybe I need to find a different place to lease. Yeah. It's been a lot of fun, man. Thanks for oh, hosting yeah. with me. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for putting up with me.
Well, that's going to wrap it up for us this week. Appreciate you joining us. We want to make it easy for you to listen. So here's a handy option for you. To get the podcast emailed to you each week, just text the word hunting to 773-770-4377. Again, just text the word hunting to 773-770-4377. You'll join our email list. And wherever you are listening to podcasts, go ahead, subscribe, rate, and review. Send us a written review. We'd love to hear from you. If you got a show topic, that you are interested in and like to see us cover, just email us at pros at landhunting.com. That's going to do it for us. Y'all stay safe out there. We'll talk to you next time. This week's show is brought to you by Texas Hunter. Since 1954, Texas Hunter products has delivered the finest quality fish and game feeders and hunting blinds in the industry. To learn more, visit texashunter.com. And also brought to you by Mallard Bay Outdoors. Book your next guided hunting or fishing trip with thoroughly vetted guides or charters. Built by sportsmen for sportsmen. Mallardbay.com. And also Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks. Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks are proud to be your metal roofing headquarters for over 40 years. They now have eight locations to serve you. Dixie Supply and Baker Metalworks, your metal roofing headquarters. And also by Bucks Island Marine. Bucks Island is a full-service facility that sells new and used boats and motors. Visit them at 4500 Highway 77, Southside, Alabama, or give them a call at 256-442-2588. And also brought to you by Alabama Farmers Co-op. Alabama Farmers Cooperative has been serving gardeners, farmers, and everyone in between for 85 years. Visit www.alafarm.com for more information and to find a co-op near you.